Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Achilles and Hector from The Iliad. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Virginia McAllister. Welcome back, Virginia. Thank you. Happy to be here. And this is a text that I've kind of been kicking around doing on the podcast for quite some time. And it made sense to invite you on because you have taught this uh, this text at various points in college classes, correct? Yes, I taught uh, the two, Humanities 201 course at BYU, and this was one of the required texts that were part of that co- course. Yeah, the Iliad is the epic poem credited to Homer, more on that in the trivia section, which was written down sometime around 750-ish BC, more on that in the trivia section. Uh, <laughs> the oral poem that it is based on was likely passed down for several hundred years before it was written down, and it tells the story of some events during the trojan war i can't really say that this is the story of the trojan war because it's more like the story assumes the audience knows the story of the trojan war and it's giving us some personal moments within the trojan war definitely yeah it starts well (laughs) into the trojan war so and i mean there's there's aspects of like when you hear achilles and you hear the trojan war you think ah the heel or ah the trojan horse neither of those mentioned in the iliad true Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's true. I always, I always forget that those are outside of the, the actual text. Um, we always throw out the question of how we came to it with the text, like the Iliad. It's kind of like, well, most of Western storytelling owes some debt to the Iliad, <laughs> so you've you've encountered it, even if you haven't encountered it. <laughs> you 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 kind of have to know it. Um, I can't remember exactly when I first actually read any of the Iliad I would I'm gonna guess it was required reading in junior high uh, you know at some point in an English course at least a section of the Iliad was required um, but do you know Virginia when you first found the Iliad <laughs> or it found you and kind of resonated with you as something like "Ooh, this story matters yeah I I don't I can't remember when I first you know kind of read part of it like you said I would assume probably somewhere in junior high or high school, you know, as, as part of an English course or something like that, it was at least discussed, if not parts of it were required reading. Um, and then I also took Latin for several years, you know, so while this was a Greek text, you know, just, you just were aware of ancient history and the influences on and Roman the literature. The classics, and of course, right, the Iliad were... was really foundational to that. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're doing Latin, it's it's kind of uh, becomes an umbrella for the classics in some ways. Yes, yeah, and so that would definitely come up, I think, in it. Um, this is an interesting text to try and find trivia for because it's the Iliad, <laughs> and so it's one of the most important <laughs> stories uh, it, again in Western storytelling. But also, so much of what we'd normally put into trivia is just kind of lost to history. It's like, yeah, I mean, like even was there a Homer? <laughs> right. Many question marks <laughs> yeah, about I, the, I, around the Iliad. Yes. Um, a little while ago, I, I think like a year ago, I listened to um, one of the great courses, like audio, um, you know, audio book. Uh, it was about 
it was called Homer's the Iliad or Homer's Iliad, I think is what it was called. It was by Elizabeth Vandiver was the professor who had prepared this six hour lecture about it. And I just remember thinking, oh, that was all really interesting. And so I re-listened to it <laughs> in preparation for this podcast now. And she she makes some really good points about how so much of this feels familiar because of the kinds of storytelling traditions that are going to come out of the Iliad, but how incredibly foreign the culture, the cultural norms in which, you know, the, that is the backdrop mm-hmm. for the story actually were. And there are things that are just taken for granted in that story that are so alien to a modern audience uh, that sometimes we don't, we don't even quite know how to how to process it. And she highlighted four things early on in the lecture that this is a society that is completely patriarchal. And she doesn't mean like, oh, there's glass ceilings women need to break. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> there are no rights for women. Right. <laughs> in terms of this being a patriarchal society, it is completely monarchical. There is, you know, a, a hierarchy that is not in any way the idea of like, People can rise up. It is, you know, all class, all power is very delineated in ways that are foreign to an American audience reading it, in, you know, today. Uh, polytheistic. And she makes the point. When I say polytheistic, I need you to understand that today atheists are monotheistic in that they say they don't believe in a God. <laughs> right. Yes. And agnostics are mo- monotheistic in that they question the existence of a God. A God, right. <laughs> and this is polytheistic. And also she kind of wishes that we didn't use the word gods to describe them because <laughs> it, it gives a whole different set of baggage yes. uh, for these beings that are, are present and real to the people that are receiving this story. And also another thing that she said is like the society would have been like unquestioning about slavery. Like there's no doubt you don't want to be a slave, uh, but those who are slaves that don't want to be slaves, they don't question that there should be slaves. It's just slavery is part of everyday life. Mm-hmm. And all of those are completely normalized and facets of this story that kind of need to be understood to really appreciate what it is. And if you come with a modern lens, there's so many like things that are just like you going to be friction points. Yeah. Um, and the story yeah. doesn't do a good job. Or I mean, it doesn't take any time to explain any of that because that is the norm. Right? This is the ocean in which the audience would have been swimming in for centuries by the time this is actually written down. And so there's, you know, there's no question that this is the way everyone always has thought and will always think about these particular things. And within uh, that idea, there's also, OK, this was definitely an oral tradition for centuries before it was written down. And even when it was originally written down, I mean, we know it was, it had to be oral tradition because it, it clearly other, other things in art and, and other references that we can find to this, the existence of this predate Greeks having an alphabet. That's what we need to understand. (laughs) Like there was no alphabet with which it could have been written down. Um, And it is centuries before it actually gets written down. And even then, once it is written down, it's like centuries later, someone makes a reference to like why it was written down in the first place. And like, we kind of grasp onto that, like, okay, this explains it. But she makes the point of like, this would be like someone like no one had ever put the history of the book down. And then someone in the year 1950 is like, I think someone named Gutenberg invented the printing press. And every, every historian from then on has to say it was Gutenberg <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like there's just so much mystery uh, including, I mean, basically, it's like to us ancient historians looking at their ancient past and trying to figure out some of this, and that's our like primary text in terms of commentaries about the existence of the Iliad and how we have it and who wrote it. 
uh, in these. So there's far more question marks than like firm handles that we can get when we talk about what the, you know, the origins of the Iliad. Mm hmm. Definitely. And then even things like uh, like if you if you pick up a copy of the Iliad, uh, what you know, there's multiple translations uh, today. So it depends on which translation you get, but they're all divided into books. But those books were most likely like modifications done in the Library of Alexandria is our understanding, <laughs> like where they're like, OK, we got to organize this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and so it gets put into books. It's kind of like you pick up the Bible today and there's chapters and verses like that. Mm -hmm. There didn't used to be chapters and verses. Someone decided to organize it this way for us for clarity at some point someone organized the iliad for us and there is to this day massive debate about whether things uh, were reorganized uh you know moments were moved mm -hmm. around uh because the, the like the uh the flow of time in it is a little little wibbly wobbly <laughs> at some points <laughs> and there are some contradictions uh so it's just it is a glorious text but it's also gloriously messy i think is a good way to kind of think about it that works yes <laughs> a good way to describe it yeah do you have any additional trivia um a few things uh things that uh, i know at least my students would always wonder about where the term the iliad came from not sure if you know because they hear like the odyssey is the story of odysseus the aeneid is the story of aeneas and then mm -hmm. they get to the iliad and say wait who's who's iliad is there an ilias here or yes. <laughs> you know where is this name coming from uh so it's just because another word for troy was ilium or ilian and so okay. that is the the reason why it's called the iliad so it is essentially the story of troy or that trojan war as you mentioned now it's not the story of the whole war but it's set around um, those events. A um, couple other things. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, Alexander the Great was actually very much inspired by this text and his army was largely created around some of the organizational structures and the values that were contained um, within the Iliad. So I always found that one pretty interesting and a lot of other Greek generals. So it, it was basically like a, a text for military strategy um, for a long time in ancient Greece. Um, let's see, also from the Trojan side, both Rome and London claim to be founded by descendants of Troy. Um, so that's always a, an interesting tie. And, and again, that's where a lot of question marks come in for historians about whether or not they can prove those things, but they at least have those, uh, those theories or stories or traditions. Um, mm -hmm. and then also, I mean, you talked about the gods and the goddesses. And I think we could certainly talk more about them when we're talking about the text itself. Um, but Homer and the Iliad is largely credited for kind of the, the attribution of personalities and characteristics that we associate with the different gods. Um, in fact, there's a line by Herodotus, who was a Greek historian, uh, that he said, the poets, not the priests, design the deities, personalities, lineages, and titles. Um, so this idea that Homer kind of crafted these these characters um, that became the gods and goddesses that we have always associated with ancient Greece. So so there's a little bit of trivia. Yeah. And I, I mean, I do also want to throw out here that it's kind of a miracle that we have the Iliad <laughs> and the Odyssey, both in terms of texts from the historical period that this is coming from. I think the estimate is we have like far less than 5% to survive <laughs> to, mm -hmm. to, to the present day. I mean, we, we talked about um, Antigone and um, you know, that's one of 
you know, we know there were something like 130 plays written by, um, oh, what's the name of the play, uh, playwright for Antigone? Um, oh, um, Sophocles. Sophocles. And I think, is it five, six or seven? Something like that, that exists. And he was one of the most famous, so they would have been preserving his plays. And right. we have five, six or seven of those. Uh, and there's so many things that we get references to in our few surviving texts from this period where it's like, okay, well, there were obviously these other plays, these other books or, or these other stories that were known and we just don't even know what they were. And then I think it's safe to assume you can multiply the ones that there is no existing reference to that once would have existed. And we just have no idea. They're just gone to history um, because of the passage of time and the, you know, how difficult it was to preserve these texts. Um, like, you know, whenever the Iliad was finally written down, um, Anytime you want another copy, someone had to write every single word. <laughs> you know, word for thousand <laughs> lines. <laughs> and, and that's anytime you're, you know, it's starting to break down. Someone better start writing, or, <laughs> or it's going to be gone. And and so it, it's just amazing that we actually do have this. And I I think it's prominence in terms of how important it is to the tradition of storytelling that we have in the Western world is both because. Uh, it was so well known in its time that everyone knew it. It was getting passed down and it was written down, but then also it, it actually stayed around. <laughs> like we, we, we held mm-hmm. on to it. Uh, right. And and so some ways it's, it's promising maybe just the quirk of this one happened to be preserved um, among, among all the other ones that would have existed at the time. Well, and it was so foundational though. I mean, you can see yeah. the value that it had on or the impact it had on society. You know, mm-hmm. and it was it went far beyond just being a great work of literature. Yeah. And um, I, I mean, I, I think the general argument that um, at least I was given to me in that uh, Great Course Plus episode or, or uh, series of lectures was that when it was part of the oral tradition, it would have been like a three day affair during a religious festival to listen to mm-hmm. the Iliad recited. Um, and you know, that would have been happening basically annually <laughs> that people gather around and hang out and listen uh, again for centuries. There's not the option for doing it any other way mm-hmm. uh, than, than this oral passing down. And so as you know, yes, this is credited to Homer, but I mean, obviously there, there must be tra- transformation that happens <laughs> through the passage oh, yeah, of time, absolutely. through the passage of uh, memory uh, and uh, you know, new orators putting their own spin mm-hmm. uh, and, it's if you start to look into like arguments about who actually wrote this, you will get into like centuries old debates about the repetition of particular uh, turns of phrase. And like, well, does this evidence that the same person did, did, did write all, you know, this section over here and this section over here and this section over here, or mm-hmm. is that something that just kind of builds up uh, <laughs> across centuries? And we just, we just don't know. Right. Um, I just love the idea of like, uh, the academics arguing with someone who is dead about this text, <laughs> you know, that's, that is so long gone. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the nature of academia, I guess. Yes, definitely. All right. Well, before we move on to the actual summary of the Iliad, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank anyone who supports us financially on Patreon. If you if you would like to do so, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level will receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Virginia, you were kind enough to um, offer to write the summary of the Iliad. And I believe we're not doing 
the entire <laughs> alien, which is a doozy of a text. We're, yes. uh, we're we're lifting out some like the we're Norton anthologizing this. We're lifting out some key passages or, or sections. Just hitting the highlights. Yeah. <laughs> Although I guess uh, you know, depending on who's reading it, their highlights might be different from mine. But um, I, I think it's safe to say some passages don't translate as well for a modern audience as some other pa- right. passages. And like you said, there is a lot of repetition within it, and there's a a lot of battle scenes, you know, things like that. So, yeah, I, I, um, I don't know. You, you what, can kind what? of condense a lot of that. There, there were people fighting, people dying, more yes. people fighting, more people dying. Right? Yeah, I mean, we we've summarized many a comic book story, and it's like, man, there's a fight, and then we just move on to the next part. Right. And I don't know what it is about the way um, art portrays battle. I will just say listening to the audio version of the Iliad being read that I did, the battle scenes were not the most gripping things I've ever experienced. Uh, <laughs> just, just something about my sensibilities in the centuries old text didn't quite align in those passages. I could see that. Well, and there's a lot of, you know, like symbolism and things kind of woven into it that can kind of take you out. I think of the actual action that's happening, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, there's a like, lot of discussion of like the armor, uh, yes. right? And, and like the, the helmets that they're wearing, which makes me like want to pause and like, wait, what is the symbolism that's going on with these these helmets and these, these descriptions of these things? Right. Or Achilles shield. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole huge passage just on this one shield being created and everything that's going on on the shield, things like that. So um, yeah. and they're, busy they're kind of beautiful, the descriptions, but in terms of moving the story aligned, they do or along, they kind of stop and sort of take you out of the the pace of the narrative and things like that. And, and you're more into like sitting there and pondering a piece of art you know, yes. rather than being in the middle of a war. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, okay, so summary. going to start with a little bit of backstory, just because if people are not super familiar with the Iliad and what's leading up to this, because you are kind of dropped right into the midst of the story. Yes, um, and I, I think it's really interesting because it is so clearly accepted that everyone who's watching this or, or listening to this or reading it or however you're going to consume it knows the story of the Trojan War and right. you're in. And everything that's led up to this point. And it makes know, me think about like sometimes right in. you watch like a movie from like the 1940s and there's like these cultural references that's like that has no meaning. Like, mm-hmm. and they must have thought this was going to be timeless, but it had like I have to go research like <laughs> to, to dig out to find out what in the world <laughs> they're they're talking about in these references to uh, be it political figures or social movements of the time uh, or or some like social norm that's just gone uh, right. for us, and just imagine that compounded by centuries and completely different cultures. Yes. So I'll give a little bit of little bit of context here at the beginning. Um, so when the Iliad starts, it's nine years into the Trojan War. So the Trojan War is a 10-year war. We're starting in year nine. So that is where a lot of context is sort of lost on you if you're not aware of it. Um, the war started um, after Paris. He was one of the princes of Troy. And he was asked by the goddesses Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite to choose which goddess is the fairest. Uh, And that is a no-win situation for him. (laughs) They each bribe him, and he chooses Aphrodite. uh, And she rewards him with the most beautiful woman in the world, who was Helen. However, Helen happened to already be married to the king of Sparta, named Menelaus. And he was the brother of Agamemnon, who was sort of the high king of all the Greeks. 
Um, Agamemnon declares war on Troy as a result of this, um, of a result of his brother's pleading, and he assembles the greatest warriors throughout Greece. Uh, and this, of course, includes Achilles, who is uh, generally recognized as the greatest warrior of Greece. Uh, he was the son of Peleus, who was king of Pythia, and Thetis, who was a sea nymph. So he is uh, has a, a mother who is a goddess. Um, when the Iliad begins, Agamemnon receives a woman named Chryseis, who was the daughter of a priest of Apollo, as a prize. And again, as you talked about, you know, women have no rights, right? They were just prizes of war um, in this case. And uh, he received her as a prize after the Greeks sacked her city. Her father begged for her return, but Agamemnon refused, and this angered the god Apollo, so he cursed the Greeks with um, illness, and several of the Greeks le Greek leaders, including Achilles, decides that they need to do something about this. So that's kind of where the Iliad is picking up, is um, Chryseis had already been given as a prize, uh, the priest had already come and begged for her return. Agamemnon had already refused, and this illness was raging um, among the Greeks at this point. Uh, so we start, the first line uh, is about the rage of Achilles. Uh, we're kind of giving given a preview of what the story of the Iliad is going to be about. Uh, and he goes to Agamemnon with several of the other leaders and begs him to return the girl so that the curse can be lifted. Um, however, Agamemnon, Agamemnon reluctantly agrees, but only if he receives Achilles' prize, who was named Briseis, as compensation uh, for his lost um, reward and as compensation really for his lost pride. Uh, Achilles, uh, since he was the most skilled fighter among the Greeks, he argues that he received Briseis based on his feats of battle and his skill, not just because he sat on a throne. Uh, and he also says that he loves Briseis and he doesn't want to give her up. Uh, however, Agamemnon exercises his power as king and takes her away, which angers Achilles. And he then goes and refuses to fight any longer in the war. Uh, without Achilles, the Greeks eventually suffer heavy losses at the hands of the Trojans. Uh, and they are led by Prince Hector. He was the son of King Priam and his wife Hecuba um, of Troy. And he's shown as a very devoted husband and father, but also a very fierce fighter and leader. Uh, the Trojans eventually drive the Greeks back to their ships and even burn one of the ships. And several of the Greek generals are wounded in battle. Uh, with defeat imminent, the Greek leaders convince Agamemnon to return Briseis to Achilles and also uh, basically bribe him with a really large reward to come back into the war. Uh, but Achilles on, uh, argues that this cannot restore his honor and he still refuses to fight. Uh, they eventually devise a plan to have uh, Achilles' cousin and closest friend Patroclus wear his armor and lead the Greeks out in battle. And initially they're successful and uh, Patroclus even kills one of Zeus's sons, but Apollo uh, then knocks the helmet off Patroclus's head and Hector sees him uh, and goes and kills him. Uh, and while he's killing him, Patroclus prophesies of Hector's death at the hand of Achilles. Hector takes Achilles' armor uh, from Patroclus and even threatens to uh, defile the body, but the Greeks fight for his body and are eventually able to uh, get that back. This was really important because they believed that the soul could not cross the river Styx and enter the afterlife until the body was properly buried. So it was very that's going important. to be important in a little bit. Yes. How important that, that is a really the proper important. burial is, is yes. really key. <laughs> really, really important to the end of the story. 
Um, so they do retrieve the body. They take it to Achilles, who is just utterly devastated at Patroclus's death. He eventually des- uh, decides to return to fight and avenge Patroclus and also to secure his immortal glory. Uh, and his mother, Thetis, asks Hephaestus to create a new set of armor for him. And that's where you get that scene of the really ornate shield, which is a really um, memorable scene. It's definitely one that uh, you always teach if you're teaching the Iliad is the, the scene of the shield. Um, as Achilles re-enters the battle, he kills all the Trojans he comes across and drives them back to their walls, with the exception of Hector. At first, Hector is determined to fight him, but then realizes the likely outcome and he begins to run. And we get this great scene of Achilles chasing Hector around the walls of Troy. I think they run at least three times around it before finally Zeus decides that he has to intercede and follow the fates. And he sends Athena down uh, to trick Hector into turning and fighting Achilles. Uh, Achilles sees his armor on Hector uh, and he knows the weaknesses in the armor. So he Uh, then uh, is able to um, kill him and defeat him. Uh, He strings Hector's body on the back of his chariot and drives him around Troy. And this obviously elicits a lot of horror on um, on the behalf of Hector's parents and his wife and the rest of Troy to see his body being defiled this way. Achilles continues to taunt them with Hector's body for several days while he's also going through the grieving process for Patroclus. Uh, but then again, the gods uh, decide no. to intervene. Oh, by taunting them, he's he's dragging behind his chariot still, yes. right? <laughs> yes, he's dragging him behind his chariot and basically taunting them outside the walls. Um, and uh, however, the gods preserve the body um, and decide to intercede once again. Thetis tells Achilles that he must return the body. She goes to him on behalf of Zeus. Zeus is kind of uh, the referee, I think, of the war is a good way to put it. (laughs) Make sure everything is uh, done as it needs to be. Uh, And then he also sends Iris and Hermes to lead King Priam to the Greek camp with an enormous cart of gifts. And again, these are basically bribes um, for Achilles to return the body. Uh, to him. Uh, And then in probably, at least for me, one of the most moving scenes in all of literature is the scene when Priam goes and kneels at the feet of Achilles uh, and they uh, weep together as Priam talks about his son. And Achilles also uh, speaks of his father, since at this point, Achilles knows that he's going to die soon in Troy and that he'll never see his father again. Uh, Achilles accepts the gifts and returns the body and agrees to pause the fighting for 10 days so that the Trojans can bury Hector. And the book ends with Achilles' rage subdued and a heroic burial for Hector. The end. <laughs> well, that is a, a great summary. The story, um, I think, like, it starts in Medias and it kind of ends <laughs> in Medias yes. too. Like, well, this is not we don't really find out what happens with the whole war. <laughs> like it's... Right. It is not, it, that would confuse a lot of students. Is it, This is not starting with the beginning of the war and it's not ending with the end of the war. It mm-hmm. really is just sort of these scenes of kind of the, you know, just these episodes um, from, I guess it's towards the end of the war, but it's certainly not the end of the war. Yeah. Um, and there's there's I think there's so much that's really interesting about Achilles and Hector and what is kind of portrayed as noble or honorable for right. the audience. Um, I mean, this is the kind of mythology that is, a, a, you know, about uh, in many ways passing down values or normalizing what is the right and wrong choices. 
mm-hmm. uh, in this. And in doing that, it's not like every choice that they make is the right choice. Like you're supposed to be questioning, you know, Achilles choices when right. he's off pouting uh, and isolating himself. Like, is that really the right move, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, in this particular moment uh, for him to do. And it's, it's just, uh, there, there's so many things that are so skillfully done in the storytelling, like the parallelism that we're given mm-hmm. that you want to think like, Oh, there must've been like one genius that was telling this. So like you mentioned, like the scene with Achilles facing his enemy and his enemy pleading with him is like, has a breakthrough for him. But when his friends are pleading with him previously in the story, they can't get through to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like the, the way those scenes are structured, it's like, Oh, the, this has to be like one person who is, right. uh, you know, uh, plan plotting this out and laying the seed here in this one scene that you're the contrast is going to come you know the way we consume it now books later <laughs> mm-hmm. is is going to be the payoff absolutely yeah it i it is an immensely complex story uh you know overall the story is is kind of simple but then when you get into the characters i think they're just so incredibly complex and multifaceted and it's hard to imagine that happening haphazardly over mm-hmm. time it does feel like it's been crafted in a specific way. Yeah. And the character of Achilles is just so fascinating. Um, the um, in that, in that series of lectures that I listened to from Elizabeth Van Diver, she said he is both um, sub and superhuman <laughs> is, mm-hmm. is um, kind of a way and that he's at war with himself. Like these, these flaws and these strengths are, are creating so many friction points within him uh, that he doesn't know what is the right course of action? And he gets at times conflicting calls to action from, from family, from the gods, from himself and what he views uh, mm-hmm. to be it. And so much of his, uh, is, um, I, I think one reason why an audience can get frustrated with Achilles, which I'm sure some of your students <laughs> did it, did at times yes. <laughs> uh, is the Greek idea of honor is very different from the way we kind of think of the honor today. Um, I, I, it was described in the, in those audio lectures as honors, an external zero sum game. <laughs> if someone else is getting honor, you are losing honor uh, essentially. Hmm. And uh, we think of honor as like, well, if I'm doing what I believe is right, there's this internal honorable action, you know, honorable motivation. Right. And that's, that's not what they're talking about when they talk about the honor of the gods and the honor that's given within the Greek culture mm-hmm. then. And so when Achilles feels like his honor is being taken from him. Like it is, it's part of his identity is being stripped away. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, by like taking the prize right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and again, I know this just goes in the face of all the modern sensibilities, especially for women that this, woman was the prize mm-hmm. right and she's and we are not trying to excuse that we're just trying to contextualize <laughs> and she has no say in this and, and things like that but um you know for him yeah having that prize taken away was thereby taking away his honor because she was given as a result of his skill and battle you know and for the greeks that was one of the most valuable things that you could possess was skill in battle, right? And bravery and being the greatest and the strongest and the best at something. And so to have that, um, that prize and that sort of symbol of who he was, was sort of stripping away um, essentially part of his identity as the best warrior of the camp. 
Now, when you've taught this, like you've been able to get, I think, a sense or or your finger on the pulse of dozens and dozens of people reading the story, um, you know, with more modern sensibilities. What, like, who resonates, Hector or Achilles? Like, what are they taking away? (laughs) Who... (laughs) <laughs> so this is actually, I would have them write a report. It was always the first report of the semester would be on the Iliad uh, and we'd study it. And then I would have them write a report. And basically the topic was, who would you say is the hero of the story, Hector or Achilles? Um, and then I would do that somewhat intentionally because I knew the majority were probably going to say Hector and they would, you know, defend their argument, but those were also the ones looking at it through a very modern lens um, and through modern sensibilities. Whereas the more critical readers were the ones that typically identified Achilles. And those were the ones I kind of watched a little more closely throughout the semester because they tended to be my better students. So it was always sort of a bellwether report. It was really fascinating over years of doing this um, to kind of see the results of that report um, and and kind of use that to identify the ones to keep my eye on um, the rest of the semester. So what would the arguments be in favor for, of Hector or in fa- favor of Achilles as the hero of the Iliad? Um, I think what really resonated with most of them for Hector was he, the scenes of him with his wife, with his child. There's these really tender, you know, and very um, accessible scenes. They feel very real. They feel modern. Um, where he comes home, there's a great scene where he's still in his armor uh, and he comes home and he sort of, uh, I think, bends over his son. His son is like a year old and he bends over his crib and his son is kind of taken aback because he still has his helmet on. Um, but Isn't as there a horse on the it, helm? Yes. But once he takes his helmet off, then you know, his son recognizes him and plays with him and interacts with him. And that just feels like such a real scene of, you know, of kind of a family, um, the way his wife speaks to him, you know, it's clear that she is very much in love with him and very much dependent on him. And, and, you know, in, in one scene, she talks about how my mother's dead, my father's dead, you're basically all the family that I have, you know, and how much she kind of depends on him. Um, and she doesn't want to lose him. And so you just get these really touching mm-hmm. scenes of family life that I think yeah. really resonated with a lot of the students. It, it felt familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt, you know, modern in a lot of ways. And so that's why I think a lot of them identified more with Hector um, yeah. than with Achilles, because you really don't get as much of uh, you know, we we just have him with this prize, Briseis, who he says he loves, but we don't really get scenes of them together <laughs> and interacting. You know, we really just kind of see him for a lot of the story sort of pouting in his tent. Um, and so that was a little <laughs> harder for them to uh, to identify with, I think. Yeah, that, that scene of, um, you know, with the with the child, it actually made me think of in Jaws when Brody, uh, you know, the sheriff is like weighed down with all the issues of the shark and what's mm-hmm. he going to do. And there's this fairly long scene of him just having a bonding moment with his son and like making yeah. faces with his son. And it does so much to humanize and make you care about Brody like yeah. in that moment. And, and it's like, okay, <laughs> this isn't just man versus shark, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we, we, we now have a protagonist that we're, we have a rooting interest in essentially. And I think 
for modern audience, like that's what we want. <laughs> that is right. the expectation is that the author is going to signal to us through moments like that, who is the, the person we should have a rooting interest in. And mm-hmm. who we want to see succeed. And the warrior who is refusing to fight with his, uh, you know, his fellow soldiers and has gone off pouting because he feels like he's been scolded. That's not really our classic hero in, in you know, modern American storytelling. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, but that's where, you know, but again, you know, we're reading it with our own modern sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And that's not what the Greeks were you know the, those are not the same sensibilities the Greeks were approaching it with. Um, yeah, absolutely. For them, this sense of honor they understood it. You know, it was called erite, and and they understood intrinsically what that was. And in fact, I, you know, for Greeks coming after this time period, that that cultural norm was kind of created by these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was what they knew as sort of the cultural norm, or, or sort of the. Um, the character to aspire to or you know the the honor and the excellence to aspire to was created by achilles and this is something that we see like as greek culture you know ends up both being swallowed by but also becoming foundational to things like roman culture (laughs) um Mm -hmm. we like we we know i I think like we we pass down in our cultural heritage like the idea of um you know the the eagle marker for the the legions of roman soldiers and how that symbolic representation of their honor is so important and you would not you would die before you'd let anything happen to this external marker of your honor and and for sometimes i think for modern people it's like well i mean i understand symbolism but (laughs) (laughs) but but actual life versus symbolic honor (laughs) is anyone seeing the disconnect here and they weren't seeing the disconnect because that was uh, you know the cultural norms that their mythologies were teaching them yeah and and this story of achilles and his lost honor and how that is defining him uh even as as like i I think we want to say like fighting with your fellow soldiers that's where your honor is um it's it's something that is you know the great motivation of so much of his his anger Mm -hmm. and this story really is a lot about achilles anger and rage i mean this is not a happy man (laughs) but that that anger and that rage comes from that sense of loss of honor you know, so that's really important to understand, you know, where that rage, it's not just that he was a really super angry person, you know, or something yeah. like that, but that that rage was prompted by the loss of honor, the loss of that prize and the loss of kind of respect by the king. Um, and I, I think the other thing that's important to understand in terms of context of where we're coming into the story is that prior to the war, Achilles was told that he could have two fates. So one fate would be to go to the war and to basically receive eternal glory based on his exploits in the war, based on being the best of all of the the warriors. Uh, And that he would basically receive immortality by obtaining this glory. Mm -hmm. Um, The other fate was that he could stay home and he could marry and have children and have a long, peaceful life. So I, I've always thought that's so interesting that, and that provides me with a lot more context about his actions during the book, because mm-hmm. he knew those were kind of his two fates, and he had chosen obviously to go to war, and um, and this idea that it was better to have sort of a short but glorious life, and to have immortality through your fame, you know, based on that, 
um, that glory that you obtain through your actions than to have a long life, but sort of a mediocre life that nobody's going to remember. Um, yeah. And I mean, this idea of immortality that he seems to have been promised uh, or fated to receive, it really does become like, essentially, you will become the stuff of legend. Not that you will live mm-hmm. forever, but you will become the stuff of legend. Your name will be passed down. Uh, and it, uh, you got to situate yourself again in in civilizations that you, nothing is preserved, right? right. There, there is no way right. for anyone to remember you two, three generations on unless they are singing your song and telling your story. Um, it, I, mean, I mean, think how, I mean, for how many listeners can you, without going and look it up, can you go name your like great, great grandfather, <laughs> great, great grandmother? <laughs> like, or are those names gone unless you go find where it was written down? And mm-hmm. it's not written down anywhere in this culture, right? Yep. And so the immortality that he's going to obtain is going to come through death, either him killing other people or him being killed in glorious battle. But that is yep. how he can uh, obtain immortality. Yeah. Um, and while we look there... at us, 3,000 3, years later, we're still talking about him. So yes. it worked, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That prophecy has, in fact, come to pass because we're still talking about him. And, and how many of the farmers from the era can we name? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, really all you have are these, you know, handful of characters from this one story. That's pretty much it from that time period that's been passed down. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we do have uh, like the uh, <laughs> that one copper merchant <laughs> in the clay tablet. <laughs> Ian Nasir. I, I just looked it up. This is like the one like one of the earliest names we have recorded anywhere is someone complaining about a copper merchant ripping them off. <laughs> but that's like the only like from ancient history, like random person right. who, who gets preserved. <laughs> but otherwise, you pretty much need to be, you know, someone in a war. Fighting mm-hmm. a battle, you know, and like you said, either winning and killing others or dying um, one way or the other. <laughs> and uh, isn't there, there's a passage in here that talks about, um, I, I think it's trying to understand like the, you got to have to have an understanding of the Greek god identity, which yes, is immortal, but it's also not like all knowing or anything. <laughs> Right. It's, 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 they're they're yes. often very powerful, but not omniscient. But they, 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 but then they say man is actually in a worse position than the gods or the animals um, because the animals can't think and know how fleeting their existence is, basically. Uh, mm. And they can't know what's coming, whereas man can know what's coming and also know that they'll probably be forgotten. Uh, right. And that may, puts them like in this trio in, in the worst slot. Interesting. Yeah, that. But and uh, though I will say in this story, at least, um, Zeus is presented as fairly omniscient, that he is the one that kind of understands what is supposed to happen, what the fates have determined. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he's sort of the referee there to make sure they don't go totally out of bounds and mess up those fates. I will give Um, a a slight pushback. He can be distracted and not know what's actually going on anymore. Well, there is that. (laughs) Once he's being (laughs) seduced, he's out. (laughs) He has no idea what happened while he was being seduced. He's like, wait, what? What's going on down there? (laughs) Well, I mean, you have scenes where like Achilles' mother goes to him and kind of talks him into it. I I love that scene where he's like, well, you just go away. You're going to get me in trouble with Hera. You know, (laughs) I just I can see it now. She's coming. She's going to know that you were here. She's going to get mad at me. You know, just go away. Isn't there? uh, 
oh, isn't there like a stage where like he's he's like trying to woo someone and he like lists all the other people he's uh, all the other women he's been with. He's like, but I like you more. <laughs> it's like, really? That's <laughs> that's your art of seduction, Zeus. <laughs> that's, your, that's your selling point. Here. <laughs> yes. But I like you the best. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but but ultimately, Zeus, yes, he, he does get distracted, but ultimately he knows he does have kind of a role mm-hmm. to play yeah. in making sure that the outcomes, the lifespans, things like that are, you know, that they occur the way they are fated to occur. Yeah, um, and, and fate... that nothing goes too out of whack, even yeah. to the point where we have that great scene where his own son, you know, he wants to save his own son, but he knows this is what's been fated. He can't mm-hmm. intercede and save him. Um, all he can do is kind of make it as painless as possible, essentially. Yes, and I think it's that that's one thing that makes this so interesting is Achilles having that dual fate before him because for pretty much everyone else in Greek mythology, it's like you get one fate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why why do we have this for Achilles, I guess? Do you think that this idea that he could have chosen a different path and he would have been able to experience that other path? Whereas for so many stories, it's like, well, here's your fate. And when you try to dodge your fate, it actually leads you to right. fate <laughs> that, that you were already promised <laughs> um yeah i don't know other than it just makes him a more interesting character mm-hmm. you know to kind of know that is it's a really small passage in the odyssey where or the iliad where his mother reminds him they're kind of having a discussion and and either he brings it up or she brings it up this kind of reminder that there were these two different paths that he could have taken but he did choose this path and he knew therefore what the ultimate outcome was going to be. Um, but that's also part of why he embraced it with such vigor for nine years, you know, right. where he was the greatest of all the warriors. Um, and I think that's also why he feels such an extreme amount of emotion um, in having anything sort of take away from that glory because he sacrificed everything to be there and to be the best and to gain that eternal glory. Um, And so he knows what he sacrificed for that. Um, And so I think it just makes him, at least for me, it gives a little more depth to his character in that you, you understand what he understands about what he sacrificed to be there. Yeah. And I was going to say beyond that, he's also just sort of, always presented as as an exceptional sort of an exception i was going to say an exceptional person but even beyond that an exception right that he was Mm -hmm. uh, that his whole body was impervious other than just this one little sliver of his heel you know and things like that that there's always just all of these things about him that's sort of exceptional but there's also just these little exceptions yeah and like our opening lines about Achilles. So I've, I've got three translations pulled up here. Uh, the Lattimore, <laughs> the Fitzgerald and the Fagels. And I think okay. most people, if you've read Iliad in the last 30 years, is probably the Fagels translation. Yes. Uh, that's the one in like the Norton's anthology. That was the one that I was always teaching. Cause it was in the Norton's anthology, things like that. Yeah. And I mean the opening line. So here's versions of the opening line here. Seeing goddess, the anger of Peleus's son, Achilles and its devastation, which put pains, thousandfold upon Achaeans hurled in their multitudes to the house of Hades, strong souls of heroes. Okay. Well, well, okay. The next slide is also, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs. 
throwing the souls to Hades, but giving them their bodies to dogs. All right. But then the, this is the Fitzgerald uh, from 74. The first one was from 1951. Okay. Uh, anger, be now your song, immortal one. Achilles' anger, doomed and ruinous, that caused the Achaeans' loss, on bitter loss, and crowded brave souls into the undergloom, leaving so many dead men carrion for dogs. Um, I like the phrase undergloom. Don't hear that very often. Uh, and here's the Fagels. Rage. <laughs> Gotta yes. sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles, murderous, doomed, that cost the Achaeans countless losses, hurling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls. Uh, great fighter souls, but made their bodies carrion. Feast for dogs. Um, it's like, the uh, obviously, we're, we're trying to contextualize word choice with centuries, uh, you know, millennia, <laughs> right, of, of difference here. But it's all oriented around Achilles anger <laughs> It's mm-hmm. what this story is going to be about. Um, and as you said, like the, the bookend is actually because of the pleading of his enemy, we see a softening of his rage mm-hmm. uh, is the conclusion. And it's just, it's, it's set up so beautifully. <laughs> and I like all these different translations are actually like highlighting different aspects of it. And I don't know which one I like the best. Uh, it's just something I, I was reading um, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which has a whole passage about someone trying to translate, like make their own translation of the opening of the Iliad. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they say uh, they give us things like tell us goddess about the wild temper of Achilles, son of Peleus. No, that's not right. So speak Calliope about the outrage of Peleus's boy. Nope, that's worse. It says, tell the people <laughs> muse why Peleus is kid Achilles was so bleeping furious. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how do we capture for modern audience? Like they, they in this joke, you know, kind of joke passage from Cloud Cuckoo Land. They're like, you got to put in some profanity to really understand the level of rage that we're trying to capture when we talk about Achilles as a right. warrior. Well, and also, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. So I, I'm obviously most familiar with the Fagels, and that's the version, you know, that I kind of read. So I have that one where it does start with rage. That is the first word. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that is sort of the arc is the arc is rage and about the rage and, and the ways that the rage increases and the influence that the rage has on Achilles and then the eventual sort of um, softening and you know, sort of like an exhale of that rage at the end um, where he lets go of it. But if you think about for the Greeks, um, they often embodied characteristics like that, right? Like virtue, Mm -hmm. you know, or um, justice or love or rage. And, and, you know, so for them, it wasn't really a foreign concept to almost make a character out of an emotion, you know, or a characteristic. of people so when you're when you would have students who would correctly identify that achilles is the hero what was their like opinion of him though because like dragging hector's body around (laughs) by his chariot for days kind of a jerk move uh (laughs) especially when you put in like the meaning that oh i'm doing this so that his soul can't have peace like this isn't to taunt you living people this is to do that yes that's a bonus but really i want his soul to suffer in limbo that's like our version of limbo or like that's a a term we can use to understand what he means uh for you know what they mean for the soul at you know as he's doing this um well i think it was always important and they would often point out that while he might be the hero he was certainly a flawed hero this is not 
And that's how the Greeks often did things, right? If you think of all of the the tragedies um, mm-hmm. that come out of Greece and, uh, you know, you'd have these heroes, but they would always have these really fundamental flaws to them. But that was part of the point. It was to teach, right, that they use these stories, they use the tragedies and the plays and things like that as ways of teaching people Um, both what they should want to emulate, but also what they need to avoid and be careful of. Um, And so, you know, with Achilles, you certainly have some really strong flaws, um, you know, that kind of make him a tragic hero, even though we don't end with his death. We know that it's coming and that's something that's foretold quite often. Um, And so, you know, you can certainly see in some of his actions um, things that they would want to avoid. Um, and not necessarily emulate. And so a scene like dragging Hector's body around would definitely fall within that category. Um, And that's where the gods, you know, that's where the gods have to step in and say, okay, enough. This is not okay. Let's bring it back to the norm, right? Mm -hmm. Let's bring Achilles back to within you know, the, at least the range of the norm that we find. Acceptable. Right. Like the, the rules of war, there are rules of war and right. he's, he's violating them. Yep. Uh, and so and... we've got to step in, we got a referee, you know, and say, Nope, that's a foul. <laughs> Let's, you know, bring it back to where it should be. And I mean that if you reach back to like learning some of your rhetorical terms in like ninth and 10th grade, like Hamartia, like that's the ancient Greek <laughs> fatal flaw. Mm-hmm. Yep. And for Achilles, I mean, so often, in well-constructed characterizations where someone's going to have a fatal flaw, it's also their strength. And like for Achilles, like his rage is why he's the greatest warrior. (laughs) His rage is what is, uh, you know, turning in like is going to end up turning the tide of the war uh, essentially, but it also gets imbalanced Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where gods have to say, whoa, (laughs) slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and this is, I think, also where you can contrast Achilles and Hector um, because you kind of have them start reversing places um, at some point. So you start with Hector as seen as sort of, again, a family man. He's respected by his soldiers. He loves them. He goes to battle with them, Mm -hmm. you know, and and he's beloved by his parents and, and all of this. Um, but as the story goes on and it kind of shifts with the death of Patroclus and taking on Achilles armor, that it's almost like he starts taking on a little bit of the personality of Achilles at that point, mm-hmm. And he starts isolating himself to the point yes. where he is the only one left outside the walls of Troy. Everyone mm-hmm. else has gone into the city and into safety in the community. And he leaves himself isolated and in fact they urge him to come in and he says no um so you kind of see hector um you know uh, while he starts off really uh really good and and as this really respectful character um he kind of makes some bad choices along the way to the point where he gets himself into a situation that's going to lead to his death um but you see achilles at the end softening um, yeah. with Priam and that he comes back into that norm. He comes back into the community of the soldiers and things like that. Um, and so they kind of follow these two different paths. Um, and ultimately, you know, you end up with Hector dead um, and Achilles still alive and honoring the gods and following tradition. And so Achilles is that one that sort of ends up in the heroic um, place at the end of the story. Yeah. And I think that, 
um, the, those connections that you're identifying for Hector, it is again, like one of those things that makes you want to say like, okay, someone knew what they were doing. Yeah. This, this, oh, this yeah. story together, uh, how he is, uh, you know, embedded in, uh, a community. Uh, and then we have Achilles separating himself from his community and, and moving out, uh, and, and severing so many of those bonds. And also, um, because he knows what his fate is, he feels like he's already severed his bonds to his family, right? Like he, he knows he's not going to see his, his family again. Um, because he's here, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he, he, he chose to not have the, the long happy life of a farmer essentially. Yeah. Uh, and so he's already feeling isolated on that front. And now and like in the, these chapters of story that we get, he's isolating himself further and further and further until he allows some of those bonds to be renewed at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, uh, kind of like recentering himself within the norms. Yeah, uh, and re- and really rehumanizing himself. I think when and with that scene with Priam, where he breaks down in tears, you know, and and he suddenly becomes human again. This whole story it's been about his glory and his sort of superhuman um, strength and prowess. And at the end of the story, he becomes very human and very mortal. And we know that it's sort of foreshadowing his death, that his death's going to be imminent. But I think that's what makes him such a, a relatable character at the end. Yeah, and I, it, it can be a little frustrating, but I kind of love how abrupt the ending is. <laughs> yes, you know? it is it, very much like like the beginning. You're just sort of, and we're done. <laughs> you yep. know, and that's it. <laughs> and like part of you is like, uh, did we lose a scroll when this was finally written? Or did like someone forget the final verse? <laughs> When, when this was being written down out there that we don't have <laughs> um but it, it feels right because the whole thing is kind of like here's some moments and you know the rest of the larger story uh right. you know is, is the assumption and like i said like some of the most famous parts of the trojan war and what our our idea of achilles is are never mentioned at all no allusions mm-hmm. even to the idea of achilles heel <laughs> um yeah, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think there's one scene that does allude to his death and that it will be at the hands of Paris. Okay. Um, but but, does but it mention, it's, like, it's just oh, very he, much in passing, right? Yeah, it's nothing it's not much. It's not the idea that your mom dipped you into, uh, into imperviousness yeah. and, and held you by the ankle as she did it. No, that's not part of what's going on here. Right. And that's not what's making him. A, that, that is not why he's a great warrior, uh, you know, in this story mm-hmm. um, is, you know, a gift from the gods or anything like that. It is his rage is why he's a great warrior right uh, in in this but that's also why it needs to end where it does because the rage is spent at that point right mm-hmm. he's you know i think with the the crying with priam he sort of lets go of that um and that rage kind of flows out with the tears and it's gone and so there's no more story about the rage of achilles you know and in, in the traditions that go forward from here he doesn't die, you know, because he's enraged and makes stupid decisions. He dies because it was the fate of the gods, you know. So mm-hmm. his his story in terms of that rage is done at this point. Yeah, I feel like on the one hand, the Iliad is incredibly like well known within our culture. Like you can reference the Iliad and and people are going to nod along. But on the other hand, like I think we need a really good adaptation. <laughs> that's gonna like recenter this in people's mind and that is not troy 
everybody. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't mind Troy as like a work of entertainment, but <laughs> it's, that is not the story of the Iliad. <laughs> so. Like, I, I just feel like we should have more casual references to uh, Achilles dragging Hector than we get <laughs> in, yeah. in our culture. <laughs> as, as far as like, uh, you know, the idea of excess uh, going too far. <laughs> Like, right you know that should well, be a touchstone I, I think a lot of people could tell you oh well it's the story of the trojan war you know mm-hmm. if you asked what what's the iliad about and they might pull out achilles and hector but i don't know how many would truly identify that it's about the rage of achilles you know right. or or and that that leads to dragging the body of hector around you know or things like that and so well, or they would insert like the trojan horse uh because that's what we know of, of the trojan war <laughs> Right, but the Trojan horse does not make an appearance in the Iliad. So, you know, I, I, I think it's like it is known, but it isn't. It's mm-hmm. not really known. Um, yeah, and I think the Odyssey is probably more well-known. Yes, there's definitely been more adaptations of that. The Iliad is a really hard one to create a good adaptation of. You know, right, for because... I mean, all the things that we've talked about, like it kind of begins and ends in the middle. <laughs> and you, yeah. you don't really feel like a, uh, uh, you know, a denouement uh, at the end. <laughs> And you need all that backstory to kind of understand where it's starting uh, and things like that, you know, and, and trying to sort of personify rage in an effective way on a screen or something like that, you know, in a way that would um, help capture how much of a character it really is in the book. It would be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think there'd be a lot of difficulties <laughs> yeah. in it. I just kind of wish we had a good adaptation. <laughs> I agree. Well, it's just something that makes it more accessible um, mm-hmm. to more people. Well, Virginia, I think we're we're at our usual end mark as far as time goes for an episode of the Protagonist Podcast. I I know there's going to be a lot of answer to this, but do you have any final thoughts on the the Iliad? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I just think of how much we didn't even mentioned right you know Mm -hmm. i I mean there's so many other characters we didn't hardly mention agamemnon or paris or helen or priam or you know helen who i think a lot of people would pull out of like oh yeah the trojan war about helen (laughs) (laughs) but there's some really great scenes between her and hector um that i've I've always found really interesting the the kind of the relationship she had with hector um, and, and we didn't really get to, you know, so there, I, I guess my point is there's so much more to it, um, yeah. that it's, and I think it feels like an intimidating work. Um, but a lot of the modern translations do make it very accessible, um, mm-hmm. you know, or at least much more accessible than it used to be. Um, so. Or yeah. even, uh, like talking about the gods, we did not talk about the gods much. Right. They're fascinating in this. Oh, uh, and yeah, I, I think there are passages where you could almost come away thinking, Okay, I think this god is supposed to be like uh, almost like a Jiminy Cricket. Like they're giving ideas to our main characters, but they're not really there. But then there's other passages where like, nope, that god lifted up a human being and moved them. Yes, or <laughs> stole the, um, you know, what is it at the end? Um, uh, one of them stole something, right? Yeah. And, and uh-huh. literally or, or kept a corpse from rotting. You know, you know things <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the the gods are, and and this is where you know that's what Herodotus talked about was that that Homer gave or whoever it is that wrote this, you know, really gave the gods the personality that I think we just assumed were always there um, mm-hmm. for them. But he brought that color and that personality and sort of the family tree dynamics um, that you see playing throughout this 
um, that he brought a lot of that to light. I mean, it, it is so fascinating to think about like the history of this as a story that like between how long it existed as an oral tradition being passed down from generation to generation is probably longer than the United States has been a country before it ever got written down. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and then everything that happens once it is written down and all the, cause there are changes. We know there are changes that are, are mm-hmm. happening, uh, you know, from the, you know, then it's just the fact that we have this at all is kind of a miracle. I think, um, and it's a great miracle cause it's so important, uh, as a text for both understanding the ancient world, but also understanding the storytelling that, that we've gotten, <laughs> you know, like the, the Iliad and the Odyssey are pretty key for, what becomes narrative tradition in in the western world all right uh that is going to wrap up this episode thank you for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that really helps us out we'd like to thank scott talk to you composed our theme music thank you again for listening we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story so long Sorry, I'm about to cough. <laughs> I muted the mic so Andrew won't have to edit out the coughing per se. He's just going to have oh. to edit out this big <laughs> moment <Got it>. here. <laughs> um.